Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit Newsweek, we're talking about how Beta controversy was created by Amnesty International's report on Ukraine. We'll get into that in a bit. First, Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Well, I'm excited. We've been hiring a bunch of people at Whole Whale. You know, I'm coming back from vacation, got to see New York, got to hang out with you in actual Brooklyn. So that's that's always fun. I feel like we get like to meet in person like twice a year. <laughs> it was super fun. It's great to see everybody. But to your point, we do have a big story to start us off with. And this is one that developed over the weekend. And it's kind of a complex one, but I think it's worth unpacking. So the overview is that Amnesty International has triggered something of a global criticism for a problematic report lacking vital context that it published. So Amnesty published this report as part of its ongoing reporting on the war in Ukraine. But the report itself has been criticized for lacking critical context, framing, and has managed to trigger both internal and external condemnation. So the report specifically criticizes the Ukrainian military for violating international humanitarian law by putting civilians in harm's way in relation to where the Ukrainian military places defensive military equipment. So... While Amnesty and other international NGOs pride themselves on remaining neutral and evaluating humanitarian and legal violations, which I think is important, this report in particular uh, seems to just have been poorly framed from the onset. It was criticized for giving ammunition to Russian propaganda, um, misrepresenting the legal norms via kind of vague language. And they actually sidelined their own Ukraine-based office in its publication. That Ukraine office was protesting its release. Um, after all this criticism, the Secretary General of Amnesty actually tweeted out that all this criticism is just propaganda without really taking into account that a lot of that criticism was coming from its own staff. And actually the director of Amnesty's Ukraine office resigned in protest based on the criticism of this report. Um, I think the takeaway here is that large nonprofits, Amnesty is a ginormous organization with offices in many, many countries, um, but it's really important to recognize the damage that can come from the public fallout of a misalignment between a global, or for American nonprofits, a national organization, and then more local, regional, or affiliate offices. And Regardless of whether you what you think about the report, there probably is a kernel of truth in it. Like it's and it's really important, right, for nonprofits to play the role of kind of like objective observers in this situation. But the problem is the rollout really just didn't take into account a lot of the context in which they are publishing the report. It was immediately blasted all over Russian state media, Russian propaganda. It was a gift to the Russians um, and was was widely criticized. And that internal uh, 
And that that condemnation by the Secretary General, I thought was really inappropriate and just not useful or constructive. Um, so George, what's your takeaway on this kind of debacle, which is playing out really, really publicly and has like really, really important implications? Timing is everything. And to the kernel of truth, I encourage you to not just blindly get angry at this without reading. You should read this report end to end uh, because on the surface, here was my initial gut reaction. It was like, guess what endangers civilians? I don't know, firing missiles into cities and taking over a country through violent force. Like that's, that's the big issue. And it's, it's sort of saying, uh, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. It's, a, it's, it's such a tiny point to the macro injustice going on that, you know, you're, you're criticizing a, a country defending and fighting for its life while not really in this like one line, one line saying, one line in here, such violations in no way justify Russia's indiscriminate attacks, which have killed and injured countless civilians. Okay. And then you're arguing that they parked their military base too close five times instead of wooded areas next to uh, potentially schools and hospitals. You're like, yeah, those things seem bad, but it's like lacking, I think, to that point, the, the context. If the goal of this communication was to keep civilians safe, I wonder if this achieved. I wonder if giving as a nonprofit their stamp, brand, message nationally, internationally, a strong narrative of how Ukrainian troops in this case might be putting civilians in danger without the context of, again, countless people that are being killed and not to mention relocated and never seen from again in Russia, does that, does that make people safer? Um, and so I think it's a good reminder, especially when you're putting in reports like this, what is the object of this report? Could this have been brought to Zelensky? Could this have been brought to American officials saying like, hey, the next time we drop another billy, another billion of, uh, of weaponry, can we re make the following recommendations to keep civilians safe? Because doing this helps Russian propaganda, which helps their campaign to take over the entire country by violent, bloody force. This is a fail, high fail, but important to read. They betrayed the purpose of the communication, in my opinion. Yeah, George, I, com I completely agree with you. And it it's really interesting to see. I recently, just as an aside, I recently signed up for Twitter, which is something that I had put off for 10 you, years. You tweet now? It would be too entrenched. <laughs> oh, I don't tweet, God. I lurk. Love it. Um, but, but I'll say this, it's really interesting to see lots of Ukrainian civilians criticizing this report and just like to know that there's like th these report impacts real people. And I think there's just frustration that you have this kind of global NGO with this kind of like academic legal mindset that is issuing a report sidelining the people of that organization, even in the country, right? It's kind of, it feeds into this narrative of like the out of touch, you know, elite in London, New York, whatever. Um, I think it's really important to be understanding of, of that mindset 
Um, but it's it's interesting to see those those local stories and narratives um, on Twitter, which is like a decentralized flow of of information in a way. Um, and and to your point, like like make no mistake, we haven't really talked about the conflict in a while because it's a little bit outside the purview of what we try to bring our readers. But what's happening in Ukraine now is a genocide. The Russians are trying to eliminate what it means to be Ukrainian. Um, and yeah, an important story to follow. Um, and I think a, a cautionary tale for larger nonprofit. Yeah. And they do put a caveat at the end. It's hard to tell what they've been adding to this. I can't see the track changes stuff of what's going on and how it's landed. It does end with, you know, condemning indiscriminate attacks by Russian forces. Um, but it's, it's just, uh, anecdotal three statements by my count of individuals saying like, yeah, my, my son was killed because he was bringing food to troops. I, my people would put the danger here because it was a military objective over there. Like, you know, the counterfactual is not there. Like, let's just be clear when you roll in guns a blazing into a populated area as Russia is doing, it doesn't matter where you put your munitions in your army. Like this is just, um, a moment where even civilians, every single male has been essentially, as I understand it, conscripted into the fighting force. Guess what? Those men live places and it's called cities, densely populated cities, like Orflar. Yeah, I agree. Um, this is interesting. We'll, we'll see how this, uh, see how this plays out. But I think if for listeners who don't run large international human rights NGOs. I still think the takeaway <laughs> here though is uh make sure that you and your own staff are on the same page before you release public statements of this level of importance, right? Um that was playing out really messily in a public way on social media. Um so even from a, a PR perspective, um I think really important to kind of heed this as a cautionary tale. George, should we move on to our next story? Yeah, because I could just rant further and further about how, guess what, now Russia can use this as a banner every time they attack a school or a hospital, being like, no, see, Amnesty International said uh, they're, they're using it as a military base that you can attack indiscriminately. It, like, has betrayed the purpose and hasn't yeah, talked to the people great. on the ground as defined by the person, the head of the, the head of the Ukraine, um, I'm international group resigning. Like you didn't even talk to your own people on the ground. Like I, I hope they got a big something for this. Cause I don't see it. Yeah. Anyway, on all the work. I've done with the rants. Mostly we're done with the rants. Done with the rants. What do we got? Let's let's <laughs> aggressive switch gears. Forward and onward. Uh, this one comes from not pro. Um, and it talks about the, uh, PIR, Public Interest Registry, which is the organization that manages the .org uh, domain infrastructure, has announced a new .org family of domains that includes .charity, .foundation, and .gives. Um, that, that comes on top of some other ones, including .ngo. Uh, um, and... Uh, this is really cool. And it goes into how organizations, um, any organization operating in social impact can use these uh, specific social impact oriented domains to uh, better market what they 
are doing, right? Maybe your donation campaign is the dot gives or your foundation is a dot foundation or your large international human rights NGO could be dot NGO. Um, this is kind of cool. And I think uh, shows uh, a little bit of, of innovation in, in this space and helpfully uh, allows organizations to kind of better position themselves uh, for their, their digital objectives, at least. Yeah, the last time we were talking about PIR, they were talking about the potential sale of .org. Um, but again, the purchase of a .org doesn't require that you have a 501c3. It doesn't require anything else that you have a credit card. Let's just be clear. And in order to give that sort of verified confidence that you are who you say you are and have that stamp, things like .gov, it's very clear that that is a government government. Sites, .govs, can only have .gov if you are verified as an entity of the government. Similarly, .edu, you must be an educational institution verifiable and under law to get a .edu. You do not need any verification validation for .org. And unless I'm missing something, it seems like all of these as well, there's no verification necessary for a .charity or a .foundation. It's simply another option to... Uh, to have as, as a brand is that what, I mean, from the article I've read so far. Yeah. Those are important things to call out. And it is crazy to think that this time last year, we were talking about the sale of .org. Um, but I think an important, important thing for nonprofits to stay on top of. And in my mind, I immediately went to the use in like a, a microsite, um, and why that could potentially be useful for branding. We don't actually often recommend microsites at <laughs> all well, but um, yeah, I think you bring up some good points. Yeah. As a reminder, you have a subdomain. So your nonprofit.org, anything you put prior to that instead of www can be used for infinity number of uh, domains that you'd want to put in front of that. That would probably be my recommendation before going out and filling a community uh, domain defense, but you know, Talk to your digital strategist to decide whether or not, you know, they're rolling that out 2022 to everybody in 2023, whether or not you feel like you'll need to be doing, you know, domain defense, for instance, for dot foundation or whatever it may be that is uh, aligned with your uh, organization. So, you know, more domains to defend against. That, that is true. George, maybe we can buy a Gates Foundation dot foundation and flip it. Now I go Gates dot foundation. I would go by Gates dot foundation. Gates dot foundation. Mm. Well, yeah, you, you want to be. I, I really think there's a great look to being a, a social impact domain troll. I think it really uh, it fits with our brand, or maybe not. It, it's uh, maybe maybe we'll talk about this and <laughs> not public. Cut that. Right? Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> no, we're joking, of course. Um, shall I take us into our next story? Yeah. What do we got? We got, uh, this comes from yourvalley.net and it's about, but I've seen this story elsewhere, but about nonprofits launching a $100 million plan to support local health workers. So this is a really sizable initiative funded by the School Foundation and the Johnson & Johnson Foundation, um, which announced on Monday that they've donated a total of $25 million to this new initiative and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria which will oversee and administer the project has matched the donation and is looking to raise an additional $50 million. 
Um, so the investment here is attempting to empower frontline workers that um, experts say are essential to the battling outbreaks of COVID-19, Ebola, and HIV. Um, and just kind of goes, this falls under the umbrella of treating neglected tropical diseases um, in Africa in particular. Um, but just, I think we wanted to call this out. We don't often report on just kind of, you know, numbers and, and money and donations, but this is a really sizable one and it's going to health uh, initiatives in Africa along diseases that quite frankly um, have global implications. Uh, so George, why did you include this story? I think it's so important to look at the, the last mile when you talk about uh, lower resourced regions, um, under-resourced countries for certainly health and vaccine rollouts. It's a last mile problem. How do you get vaccines that may be in abundance, resources that are available to the last mile? And it's frontline workers. It is health workers that, that do this. And so it is just as important to developing the vaccine as to distributing it, and it's the people. And I like seeing a number this large of 100 million in 10 countries. Um, you know, by 2030 is you know a long way out, but it's looking at the, the long view that we're gonna be living with uh, an additional COVID and other, you know, hopefully not many more uh, nationwide pandemics or health initiatives that are gonna require these frontline workers, the last mile to be supported. And, you know, this is a, you know, uh, the type of money I like seeing deployed in the right way, I'd say. Yeah, I think that that is a great point. And we'll look to see, I, I'm interested to see kind of the, the efficacy of this, see the results, um, and, and we'll follow this project. I'll also pull back and say what, you know, why bring this up? And another reason is because I think we as nonprofits or your nonprofit, if you think about it, who is the person in charge of distributing that last mile? And is there a way to increase your impact and also potential to fundraise by bringing that story to light? Are there people that deliver, that give information, that are in the office, that are in the field, uh, that work with other folks that get that last mile? Is there a way to, frankly, brand, package, promote, and get funded extra money for that type of uh, that type of distribution because that's the the level that I think uh, we're in and and it seems like major philanthropies you know School Foundation Johnson Johnson are paying attention to this so um, just a thought for areas of narratives of funding potential and increasing impact yeah I think that's a great point all right I'll take us into our next story and this one comes from OpenSecrets.org which is a favorite of ours a great repository for data on spending in politics, philanthropy, charity, advocacy, and in this case, lobbying. So the story from Open Secrets is that Planned Parenthood Action Fund has set a new second quarter lobbying record amid the fallout of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, so this Planned Parenthood Action Fund is the lobbying arm of Planned Parenthood, and they spent more money than they had ever spent in a single quarter um, in Q2 of this year, uh, spending over $569,000 on lobbying in just three months. Um, and 
I don't think this is surprising. <laughs> like there's a lot of work to do, a lot of political work to do. Um, but I mean, this was this was something that we immediately knew was going to happen. There would be a ton of uh, political jockeying, uh, lobbying, and advocacy that was going to be uh, kind of initiated um, once this this ruling came out. And on the flip side of this, you uh, it actually talked about a slight decrease in lobbying spending from some um, anti-pro-choice organizations, including the Susan B. Anthony Fund, um, which is which is kind of interesting, I think, um, but something to watch. And sometimes uh, spending on lobbying can be an indication of where these organizations' priorities are and an indication of uh, of issues that really matter right now. Um, so George, what's, what's your takeaway on this? Lobbying by the C4 arm of Planned Parenthood is, you know, unprecedentedly high, it looks like, uh, going up. And it's going to change what actual politicians locally have to deal with, which is listening to the majority of the population as opposed to being handed a, a verdict by a small body of, of people that were politically elected to the Supreme Court. And now this is what we've been talking about, watching it play out on the ground. And it's going to be interesting. We uh, actually just put together an article about what is allowed for 501c3s and c4s, mainly c3s, with regard to political activities and lobbying. And it's nuanced, actually, with regard to lobbying. Uh, the narrative is that you, you can do some insubstantial activities related to lobbying, which is you know issue-based. The, the candidate-based things, and you cannot do, certainly, because you will get uh, flagged and banned as a certified 501c3, but I think there's going to be a lot more folks paying attention to how they enter the world of uh, local uh, elections, get out the vote, messaging around this topic, because now it is, and we're going to get seemingly weekly, monthly, state-by-state -state votes on Right now, what looks like ways to restrict uh, women's rights in certain areas and ways to expand and codify into state law, state legislation, uh, women's rights for uh, you know their own bodies. Yeah, George, I think that's a a great point. Um, you already see so much action around this, right? Last week, can uh, Kansas had a referendum vote. Actually, legislators there were attempting to implement a near complete ban on abortion and actually uh the citizens of kansas turned out in in quite frankly unprecedented turnout um and voted against uh that ban but the amount of money that poured into just kansas there uh to mobilize voters and spread information about this campaign on both sides was a tremendous amount this never happens um on uh like vote initiative measures like this. Um, so definitely something to watch going into the end of year. And, and to your point, I think this is one of the rare issues where actual legislation so obviously impacts actual people in extremely immediate and direct ways. And it impacts healthcare and health access and the lives of you know, more than 50% of the population, but probably really 100% of the 
of the American population. So uh, definitely something to to watch um, over the next couple months as this continues to play out. Yeah, oh, good to see Planned Parenthood putting a putting the dollars to work because that's that's where they need you to work right now. What do you have? Yeah. Feel good stories for us, Nick. All right, George. This comes from CBS forty seven, but also Fox thirty. That brands itself as Action News Jax, and I don't have much more to say about that. Um, but coming from Jacksonville, <laughs> Florida, um, this is about a nonprofit that's launched a national pickleball day to make a difference in their community. So, uh, Pickleball One Hundred and One Youth Clinic is being hosted on a Saturday, um, August sixth, with act- actually already happened. So, celebrating. Uh, what I'm sure was an amazing event. Um, but the organization believes it'll bring increased awareness to the game of pickleball and its ability to bring together people of diverse backgrounds and abilities. This is something I don't know that we talk about maybe enough, but just the role of community organizations, community sports, um, and other type community activities that create those bonds and relationships that uh, have really meaningful impact on on people's lives. And those are often nonprofit civic organizations. So just wanted to highlight this story. If this seems random to you, here's the reason I wanted to pull this out. Go to Google Trends and look at pickleball. Pickleball is the fastest outdoor sport growing, especially for the rising generation. So what's happening here is a brilliant tie into a nonprofit and cause to a rising activity and tying into that that search. So go ahead and do that. So if you've never even heard the term pickleball, look at it and look at it as an opportunity to say, hey, what is a uh, rising trend as to activity? It could have been a you know an exercise group or a social group. It doesn't really matter, but use these uh, macro trends for good. I love it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 